bit of backstory before we begin today. So we know over the Old Testament period of the Bible that Israel had many different kings. Okay. We know Israel had some good kings. We know Israel had some bad kings. Okay. You good? Okay. So we know often when Israel had a good king, God are you guys okay? What is happening tonight? This is why we need boys in the youth group. This is like way too giggly. <laughs> but he's on the couch. And he's not laughing. All right. Hey. Okay. Let's start this again. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Israel had good kings and bad kings, okay? So we know that when Israel had a good king, we would see them as a nation grow, grow culturally, politically in power, and that the kings that were good, and, and we know this happened because, not because God is like, oh, these people are good, so I'm going to give them good things, but it was because God knew that he could trust those good kings with cultural growth and power and things like that. And on the same side, we know that when there were bad kings, there were bad results that happened to the nation. We know that they would decline, that they would be overtaken and things like that. <clears throat> so at this time, we have a bad king in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem falls to... The Babylonian king, are you ready for this? Nebuchadnezzar, okay? If you can spell that, I will give you a cookie because it is not spelled how you think it is. But the Bible tells us that when Jerusalem fell to the hands of the Babylonians, that every young man who was, quote, without defect, which I don't know how that makes me feel, but beside the point, Every young man who was without defect was taken to Babylon to serve in some sort of way, whether it was in the military or whether it was in uh, like helping harvest or whatever it was. Every able-bodied young man was taken from their home to Babylon. <coughs> so we know of a few of these people who were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon and we know their story. We know the influence that they had on this whole kingdom and how they played into the story. But today we're going to look at three of these young men who are named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these three young Jewish men, they are moved to Babylon without their family. So they are now on their own. We don't have an idea of how old they were. I would guess they were pretty young, probably in their older teens, and they were moved, stripped from their family, and taken to Babylon. And during this time, King Nebuchadnezzar was apparently really into the gods that he was worshiping because he had a 90-foot-tall golden idol built of one of the gods that he worshiped. 
And he told all the people, he made a proclamation that all people of all nations must pray to this golden idol when they hear music. And honestly, whenever I think about this, and this isn't a knock, I'm just saying I'm trying to get you guys to kind of understand. It reminds me a little bit of how Islam works. If you don't know how that works in the Islamic countries, they will like play what is kind of like a tornado siren type thing. <clears throat> and they do that five times a day. And every time they do that, everyone must stop, turn and face Mecca, which is their holy city and pray. So, I mean, you can imagine if like you had an alarm on your phone that went off five times throughout the day. And every time it went off, no matter what you were doing, you had to stop and turn and face Jerusalem and start praying. Like that'd be kind of what they're talking about here. So whatever they were doing, whenever they were doing it, they would hear music and they would have to stop and begin to worship this idol. So we obviously know for these Jewish men who have been relocated that this was against the commands of God, against the Ten Commandments, against the things that God had commanded them to do, against who they were as a people. And, you know, the, the crazy thing to me and almost the sad thing to me is that so few of the Jewish men apparently seem to adhere to this command from God. The fact that they were able to single out three individuals means that for the most part, all the Israelites who were taken from their homeland and moved to Babylon just went along with it. I mean, you've got to think, like, if every Jewish person there refused to pray to this idol, there would have been no singling out of these three men. (coughs) Sorry. Now, Given the fact that we know some of the other people who were taken to Babylon in this exchange, I'm sure there were more than three people who stood up against it. But for some reason, King Nebuchadnezzar's men targeted these three men who openly went against this decree. So here we go. They get King Nebuchadnezzar's men take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they take them before the king, and they say, these men have not been stopping to worship the idol in the moment when they're supposed to. What do you want to do with them? And here is King Nebuchadnezzar asked them, he says, is this true? Is this true that you will refuse to worship my idol? And here is how these three men respond. So we're in Daniel 3, starting in verse 16. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are to be thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So here we know that King Nebuchadnezzar has said that anyone who refuses to worship this idol is going to be thrown into a blazing furnace. 
okay? And these three men are basically saying, hey, we're going to call you out on this. Like, we're not going to worship your God. If you want to throw us in the furnace, go ahead. But we trust that our God will take care of us because he is the one true God. And we know King Nebuchadnezzar didn't want himself to look weak or foolish in this moment. And so here's how he responds, starting in verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was furious and had his attitude towards them and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered that the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them in the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into a blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. So now he's won. King Nebuchadnezzar has had his way. These men who refused to do what he asked them to do, he has punished them. He has taken care of them. He's killed them, even to the detriment of his own army, okay? He was so mad, so upset, so bent on getting them to be murdered, that he sacrifices his own soldiers, putting them in the furnace. It was so hot that they die putting them in the furnace. But then he notices something's a bit off. Continuing on in verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men tied up and thrown into the fire? And they replied, Certainly, king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening at the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and their straps, perfect, or, uh, and the satraps, perfect governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor their hair or their head was singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Okay, so <clears throat> we have three guys stand up against what the world, the king, is telling them to do, even to face their own death. They say, I'm going to stand by God and trust that he's going to provide for me and take care of me. And we see that this act of standing up for God, even in the face of certain death, changes the king's heart. And he actually almost like, if you go on to read the story, he actually swings a bit too far the other way because he's like, everyone must now worship Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. And if they don't, let them be cut into tiny pieces and their house be reduced to rubble. It's like, whoa, this king was like obsessed with severe punishments or something. But we look at this story about three men who are willing to stand up for their God despite whatever adversity might face them. And I think about like, you know, we're we're very blessed that no one is forcing you guys to be here. No one is forcing you guys to not be here. Like you have freedom. No one is saying, you can't come to church Or you'll be thrown into a furnace. Like we live in a country, in a place where we have the freedom to choose what we want to do. 
So what really can we take from this story? What can we pull out of this story and say, this applies to us today? And really, I think that there are three things that we're going to walk through real quick. First, there's strength in numbers. Okay? I don't know. Uh, This is just a guess. I don't know. But I would think that if there was just one man, if it was just Shadrach, just Meshach, or just Abednego, the story might not have played out the same way. I don't know. I'd like to think they had the ability and the will to stand up one to one. But I think the fact that there were three of them made it easier for them to stand against this position. That they knew that they were able to support one another and to be there for one another and that they were in this together. And I think this is why we have things like church. This is why we band together with other believers is because there's strength in numbers. It's why we have a youth group. It's honestly why it's so important for us as a youth group to be a cohesive collective unit is because it's easier to stand together than it is to stand alone. And we all understand that. Like that, we don't need to harp on this. And, and I mean, I think about it like <coughs> the way that our, the way that this area of Arkansas is set up and where our church is located, we have kids here from like tons of different schools. Okay. Like we, we know that. But we have to remember that like if we were able to have each other in each other's schools, like I think what I'm saying is you guys sometimes have to face adversity or people who question your faith, question Christianity one-on-one. You don't always have a band of other people around you to, to back you up and to stand with you against some questions and things that you face. But that's why we have this youth group is so that we can band together and we can come together in those times. Maybe we're not being questioned in that moment, but we can go, hey, this happened to me and we can support each other. We can help each other. We can, we can discuss things that happen. But it's important to understand for us to look at this story and to understand that there's strength in numbers. But being a part of a group is better than being isolated. So, one, uh-oh. One, there's strength in numbers. Two, it's kind of the opposite of that. Two is, don't be afraid to stand for God alone. Now, even though there were three of them, I'm still, I'm still sure that on some level it felt like they were standing alone. Like they were the only people who were singled out. They were the only people who were getting pulled to the furnace. That they were alone. And this whole situation... honestly reminds me of one of my favorite sayings and it goes like this right is still right even when no one does it and wrong is still wrong even if everyone does it I'm going to say that again just because I like this quote says right is still right even if no one does it and wrong is still wrong even if everyone does it and I look at this and I think about the fact that all these Jewish men that were taken from their homeland, they look around and all their brothers are bowing down, worshiping this idol. 
it would have been very easy for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to just like bow down and just like sit in silence or to pray to God and instead of praying to the idol or to do any sort of thing that would have caused them to blend in and to keep them safe. But instead they knew <clears throat> that whatever they did would create the illusion that they were actually going along with this. And they knew that the right thing to do was to stand up against this and say, hey, this is a wrong thing to do. Guys, we are called, we are people who are called to be message bearers and light bearers for the kingdom of God. We do not have the luxury of getting to stand down from battles. It is our responsibility and our duty to fight in every battle that we are placed in. Because we are to be the people who stand up for the kingdom of God. We have to be willing to stand for God, even if it means that you're standing alone. Because that's what God expects for us. The people who are called to serve his purpose. So one, there's strength in numbers. Two, the opposite. Be willing to stand alone for God. And then third, I think it's kind of an abstract idea. And I stole, the, I stole the point from a song. We'll talk about it here in a second. But it says, if you're not dead, then God's not done. Okay? You probably have heard that from the song, My Testimony. If you know that song, that worship song. It says, if I'm not dead, you're not done. Greater things are still to come. Oh, I believe. Yeah, that one? Okay. You know, I've always viewed this kind of mentality of this like, if you're not dead, then you're not done. I've almost like viewed that all the time for old people. And I know that sounds mean, but like I think about <clears throat> a lot of times people who are even deacons in the church and stuff like that, they reach this point to where they're like, I've served God. I've been to church for 70 years. I'm just ready to die and go to heaven. Like I'm tired of life, you know, like that sounds kind of graphic, but we're just, we're moving on from it. But I've always thought this like, hey, if you're not dead, then God's not done using you was like a rallying cry for senior citizens. I don't know. Okay. But as I started to look through this story and kind of the way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego helped handled everything, <laughs> it really caused me to see this phrase in a different light. And it came from the moment when they were threatened by death in this fiery furnace. And they said this to King Nebuchadnezzar. They said, we do not need to defend ourselves for you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, our God is able to save us. Notice they said able, not he will save us. He's able to save us. And he will rescue you from our, he will rescue us from your hand. And they don't say how he's going to rescue them because he doesn't know if he's going to actually like rescue them from the fire or if he's going to rescue them and take them to heaven, right? That would be rescuing them as well. Then they go on to say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So basically, they're sitting here going, hey, our God is able to save us in this situation. And we think he will. We hope he will. But if he doesn't, it doesn't mean our God's not real. And it doesn't mean that we have done the wrong thing. And I started to think, 
where does this boldness come from? And I, and I look at Psalm 139 in King David's writing, and he basically says that God has allotted us each a time. God knows what our time is. And God is not going to allow that to be changed. God knows. <clears throat> so if it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's time, they would have died in that furnace. If he still had work for them to do, things for them to accomplish for his kingdom, and it was not their time, he was going to provide, he was going to protect them from that furnace, which is what he ends up doing. God could have just as easily allowed them to perish, and he would have been the same God with the same greatness, the same power, the same ability that he is in this story, and it wouldn't make him evil. Like, do we realize that? God could have allowed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to die in the furnace, and it would not have made God evil. It would have made King Nebuchadnezzar evil, but not God. God provided for them because he was not done with them. He knew that through them he could bring revival to Babylon, which is ultimately what ended up happening. We follow the story. We know that eventually Babylon goes back into the hands of the Israelites. Anyway, we're not getting ahead of ourselves. But God created revival through this story. Do you guys know, and I hope I say, I hope I pronounce this name right. Do any of you guys know the name Cassie Bernal? Bernal? Do you know who that is? Okay. This was a long time ago, back in the 1900s. Yes. This was back in the 1900s, back whenever I was a kid. Okay. <laughs> so, one of the one of the very first, I think maybe the first one of the first school shootings that ever happened was at Columbine High School in Colorado. Most of you have probably heard that name before. So Cassie Bernal or Bernal Bernal, um, she was a student at Columbine, and when that shooting took place, one of the gunmen found her basically put the gun up to her and asked if she was a Christian. And she said, yes, I am. And he shot her. And she, she ended up dying. And her story has been shared a lot. Like, especially, you got to remember, I was, I was 10 when that happened. So as, as I went through my teenage years, you know, this girl who was viewed as a martyr... There were books written about her and everything. Like, it was a very big deal in the Christian circles and things like that. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I often sat and thought about what I would do in that situation. Gun to my head. Someone says, are you a Christian? How would I respond? And, you know, I always, I think, you know, this, this fear of dying always would eventually take over in my, in my brain. And I would always justify it and say, you know what? I would probably say no 
just because I would want to be alive to keep serving God. Which, when you say it out loud, sounds like about the stupidest sentence that you could ever mutter. Because in that moment, you have an amazing ability to be a testimony for God. Now, if God wanted to save Cassie in that moment, he could have. In many ways. He could have done some crazy miracle like a furnace and had the bullet like go around her or something. Or like, I I don't know. Or he could have done it a more natural way to where maybe the bullet hits her but in a place that's not as vital and she's able to survive. But we have to remember, and, and here's kind of where I've landed on this. If you claim to believe in God, if you claim to believe in God, you claim to be a Christian, a follower of God, then you have to believe that his plan is the best plan. You have to. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a part of being a Christian. You can't be like, oh, I believe in God. I believe that there's this deity that knows all, is the most intelligent being in the universe, but his plan's not good enough for me. My plan's better. It doesn't work like that. If you believe in God, you have to believe that his plan is the best plan, and thus, you must have to trust his plan, even if that plan does not include you. And that sounds kind of morbid, but it's just a reality. That if you are put in that situation, your responsibility is to stand up for the God who created you and that you serve. And allow God to discern the plan. I think that's the point that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were at when they were confronted by King Nebuchadnezzar. Is they were like, look, you can kill us for this. But our responsibility is to trust in God's plan and to stand up for this God that we serve. And whatever happens to us, happens to us. If God wants to continue to use us, God will provide for us and he will continue to use us. If God is ready to call us home, God is ready for us to come home and be with him in heaven. And it's a hard thing to think on. It's a hard thing to think on. I've spent years thinking on this exact idea. So let me ask you tonight, sitting right here, how's your trust in God? How much do you trust God tonight? Are you willing to stand up for him? Not not necessarily in the face of certain death. Are you even willing to stand up for him in the face of some light mocking from your peers? If, If you aren't willing to stand up for God, 
in the face of whatever ridicule, whatever pain, whatever suffering comes with it, then I think your faith in God is being called into question by this story. And I don't mean to overstate that, but I think it's the truth. Because I view Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith in God as like the gold standard where all faith in God is measured against. And as we look at this story, your faith in God can't help but be measured against theirs. If you aren't willing to stand up for God in the face of adversity, then you seriously need to question like, and, and this isn't a like, you lose your Christianity, like, but you need to consider if you were ever a Christian, if you're not willing to stand up for God in the face of adversity. That's just a reality. Because people who truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that there is a God who has this great ornate plan for all of humanity to be redeemed through Jesus Christ, and that he has a plan for each and every one of them, and all these plans work together for his good. If you believe all that as a Christian, then you have to believe that God is going to have his plan unfold. And you know that the Bible tells us that Christians are on the chopping block for, for persecution and you've got to be able to stand up in the face of adversity for the God that you believe in. Because the way I read the Bible, standing up for God in the face of adversity is not a requirement to be a Christian. It's a prerequisite to be a Christian. Guys, no one ever said following God was easy. No one. And this is a hard thing to talk about tonight. Like, no one wants to get up here and teach on dying for your faith. Or teach on Christians facing suffering and adversity. But it's a reality about what it means to follow the God that created us. So where are you at tonight? Where's your trust in God? Where's your faith in God? I can't answer that question for you. But I hope that we all go from here and take a really hard look at where we stand with God. What would you do? in a situation where you're forced to choose between something you love and God. I hope that you guys would stand for God over everything. I hope you would. Let me pray for you guys. I know that's kind of an abrupt ending, but... There's nothing else to say. Let me pray for you guys and uh, we will go from this place. God, I thank you so much for the love that you have for us. I thank you for the plan that you have for us. And God, I just pray that you would just help everyone in here to put their trust in you, to put their faith in you, God, that, that they would... They would be willing to stand by your side amidst whatever adversity this life throws their way. God, we, we love you. 
We praise you for who you are. Praise you for all that you've done and all that you will do for us, God. Pray that you give us strength and boldness to be servants to your kingdom in all that we do. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.